0: You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org.
1: This morning's Old Testament scripture reading is from Second Samuel chapter 2. Please follow along with me in your Bible or in the one in the back of your pew. 2nd Samuel chapter 2. After this, David inquired of the Lord, "Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah?" And the Lord said to him, "Go up." David said, "To which shall I go up?" And he said, "To Hebron." So David went up there and his two wives also Aonoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to, your house, to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took ish the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahan- Mahanim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. ish Son, Saul's son was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mehenim to Gibeon, and Joab, the son of Zariah and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon, and they sat down, and the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number. 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 for the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, and they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkalath Hezirim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and his men of Israel. Were beaten before the servants of David, and the three sons of Zeriah were there: Joab, Abishai, and Asael. Now Asael was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle, and Asael pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. And Abner looked behind him and said, "Is it you?" Asael, and he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Abner would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asael, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Abner had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amma, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. And Abner called to Joab, Show the sword. Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely. The men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. And Abner and his men went all that night through erebah They crossed the Jordan and marched. The whole morning, they came to Matanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, there were, missing from David's servants, 19 men besides Asael. But the servants of David had struck down, of Benjamin, 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asael and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night. And the day broke upon them at Hebron. This is the word of the Lord. Um, this morning's New Testament reading is from James chapter three verses 13 through 18. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist...
0: Before I pray, I want to mention just one thing. In your worship guide, you should have a catechism for families, for children, young children with the shorter catechism, the larger catechism. We, if you're new here, you'll notice that there are a bunch of kids running around. We believe that it is a blessing of God to have children in the worship of the church. We don't want them relegated to some other room, but actually we believe it's healthy and good and vital. For their own nurture in the Lord to be with God's people, worshiping, um, to see Dad and Mom kneel and confess their sins. Um, I love squeals and yelps during the sermon. It helps me preach better. Um, and uh, we we love children gathering uh, with the saints in worship. We think it's also important um, that children receive instruction. Um, gr- they they grow up in the Lord, learning um, what is true and beautiful and good, learning the Bible. Um, and uh, a key part of that is the family gathering for worship in family worship. Um, and so this is meant, um, it was produced by David down here. Um, it is uh, meant to help families worship together, help uh, families as you set out to instruct your children. Um, I think one of the biggest inhibitors uh, to family worship and the instruction of our children is we have no idea where to begin. So here is a place to begin. See, like right there, half of the obstacles to doing this are gone now. It's in your hand. Um, And so we'll be uh, posting these online, talking about them more um, as a tool to be used by families as they seek to worship God together and grow in their knowledge of God together. So I want to pray, and uh, we'll get into this wonderful text. So Father, I pray now that you would cause your word to bear fruit, Um, that in these stories that unfold um, in the coming chapters, you'd overcome uh, the, the various things that would keep us from seeing and hearing your word, um, keep us from seeing and understanding and believing your word. Um, and God, I pray that you would help us to not be like Abner and not to be like Joab, uh, but Father, to be like David. Um, in your name we pray, amen. Um, one of the most contested, maybe this might be the most controversial thing I say all day, um, is that there are inherent political claims at the heart of Christianity, Um, For a long time within Western civilization, particularly in America, and particularly in American evangelicalism, um, there has been this belief that that Christianity is a religion um, and is therefore apolitical. It doesn't have political implications. Um, There might be secondary political implications, but we should resist um, uh, casting Christianity in political terms. Um, and, uh, and this has become very, very important. There are books being written now, lots and lots of books being written now, particularly as, a politi- as a, an election year is upon us, um, to try to warn us um, uh, that, that Christianity is about love, it's about faith in Jesus, it's about the forgiveness of sins, um, it's about being reconciled to God, and it has nothing to do with things like power and authority and laws and things like that. Um, that is foreign to the vast majority of the history of the church Um, The church and Christianity is fundamentally political. Now, does it have to do with reconciliation with God and the atonement and forgiveness of sins? Absolutely. But those things biblically are always placed in the context of um, reconciled to God. Why is that necessary? Well, it's necessary because our sin is treasonous, it deserves death. We've rebelled against the ruler of the universe. We've rebelled against the king of all the nations. And therefore, um, we deserve death. And so in the cross, we find that death accomplished in Jesus' own death on our behalf. And so there we find our treason, our sin, forgiven. But the fundamental claim of the early church was a political one. They didn't exist primarily to spread a religion that had nothing to do with rule and authority and governing their fundamental confession from the very very beginning was Jesus is Lord. Now I bring this up because much of what we're going to run into in these early chapters of 2nd Samuel is could be could be characterized as political intrigue. Um, a lot of political moves are being made. Who's king? Who's not king? Who's in what position? Who has what power? Who has what authority? And the temptation would be to think we're merely reading an interesting bit of history that has nothing much to do um, with the actual claims of Christianity. And to make that assumption would be to miss the message of Second Samuel um, and to miss what God is actually up to in the world. We need to take our kind of preconceived, modern, secularist ideas about religion, religion belonging in a silo over here, and politics and authority and laws um, belonging in a silo over here, and there might be indirect implications, but they don't have much to do with each other. We need to take that assumption, which is a predominantly modern one. It's a new one, like brand new, like just showed up in the last 100 years or so. For the vast majority of human history, the two were immediately connected. Who you worshipped, what you worshipped, how you worshipped was intimately connected with who you believed had authority over laws and over government and over taxes and over all of those things. Which which is why you see um, throughout history, kings making um, claims to divine right. Um, Kings making claims, uh, for instance, in Rome, to be gods themselves. But Christianity begins with the confession, Jesus Christ is Lord. So today we're going to see, in chapter 2, the establishment, within the whole context of Scripture, the establishment of David's line on the throne. This is the beginning of what we will call the kingdom of God. David's line reaches its climax, reaches its high point with the birth of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the King, which ultimately climaxes itself in his ascension to the right hand of the Father, which we'll celebrate just after Easter. But these things are intimately connected. So so don't fall prey to kind of the modern misconception that religion belongs over here, politics belongs over here, and never the twain shall meet. Um, You will live a scrambled life and with a scrambled view of how ethics and morality and authority and worship all work. And they all absolutely belong together. So here's what I going to do this morning. I want to look at this story as it unfolds, um, draw a couple of key observations as we go along, um, and then we're going to consider um, some applications. So what should we do with this? What are we supposed to learn from this? Um, the most important thing I want you to see this morning is verse one. After this, so he's just sung about the death, mourning the death of Jonathan and Saul. After this, right after this, David inquired of the Lord. Here's a man who had been anointed as king, promised that he would rule a long time ago. He's shown incredible miraculous restraint, living on the run, not killing his enemy Saul, even though he had multiple opportunities to do so, thereby seizing what God had already promised him, um, taking the throne that God had said, hey, this is going to be yours someday. Here's a wicked king pursuing him, a king who's acting as a tyrant, a king who is murdering the priests of God, um, a king who is turning against all those who are seeking to faithfully serve him and serve God. Um, Saul, consumed by envy, has pursued him and chased him and David has lived on the run waiting for the day to come when God would fulfill his promises to him. And now Saul is dead. David didn't kill him. Seems like this is the moment for David to take what God had promised him. So what you would expect to see, at least, is in verse one. It's saying, and now David began to strategically gather the leaders of Israel together to consolidate power and take the throne. But it doesn't say that. It says after this, that after this, I think is loaded. With everything in front of it. After this, David inquired of the Lord. This is humility. A glorious humility. A man who's a very capable leader. He's proven that and will prove that. A man who has. Been promised the throne, a man who's been um, already shown himself to be quite expert at gathering popular support. And rather than gathering popular support, rather than strategically moving and putting things in place um, such that he can immediately take the throne, um, when right now there's a vacuum of power in Israel, um, instead of seizing and rushing forward and taking what is, has been promised to him, he seeks the Lord. He doesn't want to take one step beyond what God would direct him to. He doesn't deny himself what, God had, what place God had promised him, but he always waits to move forward until God had spoken and directed him and said, this is now where you should go and how you should get there. It's important to keep in mind all of 1 Samuel. It's important to keep keep in mind all of David's story. It's important to keep all of that in mind and then imagine yourself in this place and not rushing to make what you want to happen happen, but waiting. We don't know how the Lord spoke to him or gave direction to him, but the Lord tells him to go up. He should go up to Judah. Judah. And then, in particular, he tells him he's supposed to go up to Hebron. Now, Hebron is really, really important. Hebron is, historically, a very, very important place in the history of Israel, and particularly in terms of the promises of God to Israel. Um, Hebron is known as the burial place of the patriarchs. Um, It is, the uh, in, in terms of the covenant promises of God, given to Abraham, given through the patriarchs, and given to Israel, Hebron is like... The, the, the ground floor, ground zero for all of those promises. It was a town associated with the patriarchs, therefore it was associated with the promises of God. It was associated with Israel as a whole being the covenant people of God. Not individual tribes, but a people belonging to God as the twelve tribes in covenant with God. And so God sends him up to Judah, to his tribe, sends him to Hebron. And so Hebron goes there, he takes his two wives, this is going to become a major theme Um, in the rest of 2 Samuel, of the problem of David and his wives, and we'll continue with his son Solomon and his wives. Um, He goes up to Hebron, um, and then is established there with all of his men, the men who've been on the run with him, and there uh, his people then anoint him and crown him as king of Judah. Now, it's interesting to note it's king of Judah, not king of all of Israel, not king of all 12 tribes, but the king of one tribe, namely Judah. But there's historic importance to Hebron and there's symbolic importance to Hebron. God is taking his chosen king and establishing his throne first in the place that that brings us all back to the original covenant promises of God. That God would establish Israel. That they would be a blessing to the nations. That the nations eventually would stream into Israel so David is established there. And then we have verse 8. But Abner. So Abner, son of Ner, he was the commander of Saul's army. He's... Um, he is the kingmaker. He is the political power of the day. He's the one who gets to choose um, who takes the throne. And he doesn't go to David's side, even though we know, we know from chapter 3, that Abner knows that the, the throne has been promised to David by God. Abner knows this. And there's a number of things in this text, there's a number of things in the next chapter um, that would clue you in that Abner is a complex character. He does some seemingly good, noble things. But foundationally, one of the things you need to know about Abner is he knows who's God's choice to become king. But he doesn't go and serve David. He doesn't call the houses of Israel to serve David. He has military power, military authority. And he goes and he takes Saul's son, Ish-bosheth, the 40 year old, and he makes him, gives me hope, being mid 40s, and makes him king. Um, and he works to get all of the other tribes, all other eleven tribes, to come under Ishbosheth's rule. And they go to Mahanaim, Mahanaim Um and establish their uh, their kind of temporary capital city there. Um, David is in Hebron; his temporary capital city is there. Um, and lest uh, you've maybe you've forgotten some of your um, Israel geography. Lessons. Let me set that up for you. So you have Judah is the furthest south in terms of tribes. Um, if you think about where the Dead Sea is, um, Judah surrounds uh, the, the the northern end of the Dead uh, of the Dead Sea. Really falling on both sides of the Dead Sea. Um, Hebron would have been uh, squarely in the middle there. Um, uh, the the territory there taken by Ishbosheth is essentially everything north, um, including the east and the west side of. The Jordan River all the way up to the Sea of Galilee. Um, so, Ishmael has claimed a, a very important strategic area. Uh, you'll remember, though, there's probably some craziness going on um, on the west side of the uh, of the Jordan River because the Palestinian, uh, the pal- <laughs> the Philistines, not the Palestinians. We're going to get into a lecture here on current events, but um, <laughs> the Philistines have just kind of wreaked havoc. Uh, over on the west side of the Jordan. And so um, he actually, this city is on the east side of the Jordan, probably to keep away from um, the marauding Philistines that are over on the west side. So he takes up his, uh, his authority, kind of um, Abner works to kind of consolidate power around Ishbosheth among the other 11 tribes. Uh, Judah comes and stands with David. Um, and then the text tells us in verse 12 that Abner sets out with um, a group of men, a group of servants, Army, the army, um, sets out from Mahanaim um, to go to Gibeon. Now, Gibeon uh, sits really kind of in the territory between those two lands. So you have, uh, you, you have Abner and his army up north. They begin to move south towards Judah. And he comes to Gibeon, uh, then uh, Joab with David's men, um, I, I'm assuming seeing, getting reports, this army's coming south, uh, go north to meet them. And they meet at Gibeon at the pool. And then Abner has this really interesting turn of phrase, verse 14. He yells across to Joab and Joab's men and he says, Let the young men arise and compete, although the, the word there is technically play, before us. He proposes a kind of tournament. Um, There's nothing martial in these terms. There's nothing to indicate in these terms um, that he wants to fight, that he wants everybody to kill each other. Um, He seems to say here, let's propose, we're here now, um, let's propose a tournament. Some scholars think that uh, um, as this becomes clear as this chapter goes on, uh, that Abner's army is much much smaller than Joab's army um, since they eventually get absolutely routed uh, by Joab's army. Um, and so he sees kind of the uh, how things are really off kilter and things aren't going to go well for him. Um, so he says, oh, I know. Rather than fighting, let's have a tournament. Like a game. Play football. I like to imagine it was tackle football um, with swords, I guess. Um, and so they have their little tournament. But what happens right when the tournament begins, um, they have 12, uh, so it couldn't be football, um, they have 12 from... Um Ish-bosheth side and 12 from David's side, um, they all meet in the middle, um, and they start their little contest, their tournament, their play, um, and they immediately all <laughs> grab each other by the heads and thrust their th- swords through one another. I'm sure if you were there, it was quite tragic, but hearing about it now from a distance sounds a bit comical. Like all 24 guys out there were in a fight, and then they grab each other by the heads, And then they both stab each other. And then all 24 people die. So that happens, and then chaos breaks out. This is the beginning of civil war. This is the beginning of a battle, a fight, between the north and the south, between one tribe and the other 11 tribes. Um, Joab is accompanied by his two brothers, uh, mostly his youngest brother, Asael, Uh, Takes off after Abner. I'm probably certain that this will get him some notoriety if he's the guy who kills uh, the um, champion of Ishbosheth and Saul. He's pursuing uh, Abner. Um, Abner warns him twice, even offers, like, hey, like, there's dead people everywhere. Like, go loot them. Like, why are you chasing me? Don't make me strike you down. Um, How can I face your brother Joab? Um, An indication here that Abner knows about Joab's temper, which is going to become Increasingly prevalent throughout the rest of Second Samuel, as he's running, it says, and it's an interesting turn of phrase, it says he um, runs him through with the butt of his spear. But uh, it's interesting; it's important to note that the the spear, uh, particularly in their day, um, don't think of it as rounded and blunt. Um, most often, in order to not dull the the head of their spear, um, but they still wanted to throw their spears into the ground to kind of hold them there, um, they would sharpen the the end of the spear um, so that it, they could just sticking in the ground. So um, you have Abner um, here on the run and he either turns and thrusts the butt of his spear um, through Asael, or SAL, uh runs um, up and just impales himself on the spear. So battle continues. Joab and Abshai keep pursuing Abner until Abner finally gets to um, some of his folks who then uh, established himself in a more strategic position up on a hill um, and then calls out to Joab saying, hey, let's stop this. Stop, Stop chasing your brothers and trying to kill us. And that's where it ends. They both then retreat and go back to their respective corners. But civil war has broken out. Now, what do we do with that story? Here's three steps to have a better marriage in the light of what's going on here. I'm just joking. Um, First, uh, this is the beginning of a long civil war. Uh, It's going to continue for um, two years at least. Uh, uh, It tells us um, at the beginning of chapter 3 that they fought for a long time. Here, Here is the covenant people of God torn asunder and killing one another. And here's what you need to know. This division is tragic and absolutely necessary whenever and wherever God's anointed king is resisted. I don't know what kind of world you think you live in. We've been told that it's a nice pluralistic world where everyone can just get along. Where everything's mostly fine. That is not the world that the Bible describes. There will always be not just tension, but war, where God's king is resisted. Most often it's not martial, it doesn't involve swords or guns but you would be remiss if you think because there's not swords and guns at play in our current cultural moment that we are at peace. This civil war, which will cost lots and lots of lives, it is bloody and it is brutal. It happens because Abner and Ishbosheth and all who follow him refuse to bend the knee to the one that God had set apart as king. It's also really apparent in this narrative, particularly as it unfolds, even in this, this section here, um, that, that things don't divide neatly um, in 2 Samuel into light hats and dark hats. Uh, um, Abner behaves in some ways extremely nobly. He, he tries to not kill Joab's brother. He says, How can I face your brother if I kill you? Now, some of that might have been he knows Joab's temper. He knows his temperament. Um, maybe they went to the naval academy together, and uh, before they entered the service, and he, he knew things would go badly for him. Uh, but. Even in the next chapter, um, Abner is quick to return to um, and go back to serving um, David. He repents of taking the wrong side. Um, Joab, even though he takes the right side, he, he stands with David and he fights with David. Um, he, he's, he's a mess. I mean, he's compulsive and he's violent. Um, he, he's going to be a thorn in David's side for the entirety of David's reign, um, so much so that he makes sure that Solomon um, uh, takes care of Joab. Joab. So, so, in this story, even though we believe in uh, kind of moral clarity, we believe that there 's a right and a wrong, and God has spoken needs to be obeyed and followed even at the, at, at, with that kind of clarity that doesn 't mean simplicity there 's a complexity to the characters that are actually playing on the chessboard here, um, such that you have uh, you, you have god 's king David, you have um, the usurper of the throne um, saul 's son Ishbosheth, um, and then standing in for both of them are men who aren't clean. Joab is not a guy that you should emulate. He's compulsive, he's violent, he's vindictive, and he's known as that. Abner Abner there are times when you see him acting a certain way and you should emulate him. He shows honor but he shows honor in the course of serving someone he knows is not God's choice for king. So oftentimes, first, we forget the fact that this life, so long as there remains any resistance to the good and the gracious reign of Jesus, we are at war. And two, in the midst of that war, it's possible um, that those who oppose the reign of Jesus can at times behave in honorable ways, noble ways, ways that we should look at and acknowledge as being honorable and noble, and yet never forget their serving demonic ends. And at the same time, we should find that even in the Lord's camp, those who love the Lord, um, th- those who belong to the Lord, those who at least in outward appearance are faithful and um, um, uh, are on the Lord's side can often behave in wicked and pagan ways. That just having the right flag over your house, just, just, just taking the right side or, 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 or putting on the, the right external forms does not guarantee You're in the good place. So, we have a world at war. We have Abner's and we have Joab's. But you should remember, by point of application, there is no middle ground, there is no neutrality. As much as we like to pretend like there is, one will either serve the Lord or one will oppose the Lord. And also, do not forget whose you are and to whom belongs the world. Avoid the noble treason of Abner, but also avoid the compulsive violence and vindictiveness of Joab. This is the call. And I don't know where you happen to find yourself this morning. You came to church this morning. So, so maybe that puts you in the place of Joab or among Joab's men. You at least are trying to align yourself, at least a Sunday morning at five or six after, trying to align yourself with the one who is the rightful king. I would plead with you, don't be a Joab. Joab. Don't let your life be marked by a kind of external allegiance to Jesus, externally belonging to the church or taking the right political stands um, or or being really, really opposed socially to all the things that you should be opposed to do while inside your heart is corruption, while inside your home is anger and malice and envy. Um, don't let Wicked words come out of your mouth and out of your life um, as you pretend to or as externally you align with God. Your righteousness is not to be found in social media and and making sure you own the libs. Your righteousness is not even to be found um, by wearing a nice t-shirt that says, I love Jesus. Yes, yes, Be loyal to Jesus, love Jesus, obey Jesus, um, uh, hail Jesus as Lord and King of all the nations and then live your life in in a mark of repentance and faith, conforming it to the word of God, conforming it to the gospel that's been proclaimed to you, that you believe. Don't let your private life, your family life, your attitude towards coworkers, and neighbors be marked by Joab. But make sure your loyalty to Jesus is not merely external, but goes all the way down. Today, perhaps you're here because you're curious about these weirdo Christians. And I'm fairly certain I've done nothing in this sermon to disabase you um, of that opinion. But maybe at the end of the day, you maybe wouldn't put it quite this way. But you don't think Jesus is king or Lord. You don't align yourself with him. The, the truth of scripture says that there is no neutral ground. So maybe you showed up here thinking you're kind of neutral. You're just a happy secular person who has some curiosity about religion. My prayer is that you would see you stand opposed to the king of all the nations no matter how noble, no matter how perhaps even honorable the way you interact with people might be. At the end of the day, the call is believe in Jesus, submit to Jesus, love Jesus, uh, obey Jesus, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the glory of this moment is that you can be like Abner, Perhaps your allegiance has gone the wrong direction. But you're noble, you're merciful. You're fairly honorable. Abner in chapter three, if you want to hear about it, come back next week. But Abner in chapter three relents and returns to David's camp. Oh, that that would be you. That that would be you today. Rather than casting your allegiance to the, worldly powers to demonic powers to to, to things that hate God and hate his rule oh that you would cast all of that aside and cling to Jesus and come to Jesus and worship Jesus he is Lord he is king and all authority is his let's pray prepare for communion